Hello and welcome back to the Replatform podcast. Uh, it's myself, James, and joined by Paul, my co-host as always. Paul, how are you doing, mate, today? I'm, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. I uh, just laughing uh, at the comments we just had with our, our guest today, realising that that you two have uh, worked together on an RFP pitch before, um, and we're talking about RFP pitches, so it's a small world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, today's topic... Um, got a very exciting guest for everybody. Uh, today's topic is uh, basically cut the crap, focus on what's important for your RFP. And it's based on the premise that so many businesses go out to e-commerce RFP, but not always knowing how to do a succinct process, what to focus on. And sometimes you get a lot of noise built into it and people spend time focusing on things that aren't that important that shouldn't drive the technology decision. And you get some compromised decisions as a result of it. So We've brought in a highly experienced consultant, uh, a man who's worked on uh, multiple projects from uh, different sides uh, of the fence and therefore has got some really good views about what makes a successful RFP. So no further ado, I'll introduce Mark Pinkerton to everybody. Some of you will know him already, others may not. So Mark, how are you doing, sir? Yeah, I'm very good, thanks. Very good. Um, enjoying uh, the no- noisy uh, central London environment again. Oh, we like ambient noise in the background. It makes the podcast feel a bit more real. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, thanks very much for taking the time to join us. Um, you know, exactly. I've been trying to coach you on for, for a while and find the right topic. And I think this is quite an interesting one, given your background from having worked um, in all sorts of businesses, like big consultancies like PwC, Practicology, now running your own consultancy um, and having been involved in either writing or helping run or facilitate RFPs. So... Um, looking forward to draining your knowledge today, mate. <laughs> we shall see if it's useful. <laughs> it will. It's always useful. Um, so yeah. So that, that, having introduced the the concept we want to do about, we've got a few questions um, that we like to run through. So uh, are you ready to go? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, if I could just plug the name of my consultancy, which is Prospero Commerce. Um, the existing business that I'm working with. It's a, it's a boutique consultancy that uh, really aims to try and bridge the gap between the C-suite and digital commerce for sort of retailers and brands. We operate in that sort of space, uh, very performance focused. And, uh, you know, we're, we're there to provide genuinely independent advice. So, you know, um, both at a strategic level and a very sort of practical doing ability, which I guess we have overlap with, uh, with uh, you, James and Paul. Yeah, exactly. And it'd be interesting to tell people a little bit more, because I know there's two of you who, who uh, basically are running this uh, together. What, what are your backgrounds and what sort of skill sets do you bring? Yeah, so I'm, I work with a guy called David Warby, who's a sort of retailer through and through at a, at a senior level, having um, you know, grown e-com for, for people like Debenhams. You know, he grew that tenfold over five years and then did the same thing again for Harrods. Um, so, you know, he, he's been around um, working in retail and making, making digital commerce work for them from inside. And then I'm, I'm the sort of consultant through and through. I've been working, doing digital consulting. I've worked it out for about 22 years, which is scary. Um, and I'm there to provide the sort of the, the independent framework sort of, you know, the, the sort of, consulting way of doing things um trying to sort of just sort of logically uh, go through problems and solve problems and as a business you know we're, we're focused on improving people's overall digital commerce performance um and whether that is through replacing technology or from upskilling the teams through uh doing sort of analytics based work you know it, it, it will come out of our initial diagnostic piece of work that we do for people. Um, and, and we have a good solid process for, for doing that that works. Um, and I guess the big, the big difference from, from between us and bigger consultancies is that we can actually get our hands dirty and we've got associates uh, who can do individual pieces of work. So, you know, if there's a problem on site speed or if there's a problem on SEO or there's a problem that the client can't fix in, in some area around, digital skills then we can step in and actually run those programs for clients afterwards 
Um, out of interest, like, what is your um, what is your average client look like? Are you mostly work because I, I know you and um, your business partner have got a lot of great like brand enterprise experience. Are you mostly working with bigger businesses, or is it? Yeah, better? it's sort of a medium medium to to larger uh, retailers and the, the smaller end of a sort of FMCG brands who are yeah. obviously trying to go direct to consumers. So it's a it's a very comparable skill set that they need. Sense. Excellent. Um, so I think that's given everyone a good flavour of, of a kind of your, your background and your consultancy's background and, and hence why the relevance for this topic. So let's let's start at the beginning. Um, RFP processes can be long and, and time consuming, so you yep. want to make sure they're focused. So what for you is a starting point for new technology purchases? Where where do you focus on them initially before you start even looking at potential um, partners? Um, I think from, from our, my, our point of view, um, the first, first thing is actually to work out, A, do you need a piece of new technology? Um, and B, think about what you actually need the technology to do. Um, and how does it fit within the overall system architecture that you have? So very often the first question we would ask of a CTO would be, um, show me a map of all your systems. Uh, you know, I want a single A4 diagram of all of your systems and how they all fit together. Um, and I'm not an out and out techie, um, but you know, logically I can understand how things work and, and how things are, are, are grouped together. Um, so you know, by understanding that, it, quite often we might even get to a point where we don't think the client needs to go through an RFP process, which might not be the point of this podcast, but um, you know, I, I'm very much, I would very much encourage clients not to buy technology for the sake of buying technology. Um, so, you know, if, if you have that functionality already within one of the programs that you already own and buy, then why would you need to go and buy another piece of kit unless it does it a lot better and a lot quicker? Um, so, so that's kind of my starting point for the new technology purchase process. Um, and then once you get to a point of really understanding that the technology is needed in the first place, then is a question of how do you, how do you work out who to go and talk to? Um, and, you know, how, how do you get to a long list of vendors? I've seen somebody recently who have 23 different vendors on a very large e-com RFP that's been going out. Uh, and for me, that's just way too many. You need to have, you know, even your long list should be smaller than that. Yeah, I think that's a really good starting point though. And I 100% agree. And that's the exact, that's the whole point of this podcast episode is, is don't go to RFP if you don't need to. And and I've been in these discussions and Paul, Paul as well, people say, yeah, I'll, hey, Magento's rubbish, we can't use it. It's not Magento, it's the implementation. And actually the platform is really fit for purpose but you've just not been set up well and the business can't trade on it. Therefore actually sorting the implementation out will save you a lot of money rather than replatforming. So yeah, so I think that's a really good starting point. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of examples I've seen fairly recently. One of which is somebody who has gone, uh, who was on Hybris uh, and it's the mutual client porn I talked about earlier. Um, the, they uh, came back off Hybris and went on to Magento. Um, you know, after five, six years on Hybris. And that was done entirely from a cost point of view because you buy a platform and um, you have a three or a five year agreement. But uh, what happens at the end of that five years in that particular case was the client has, uh, or the, the platform has had a completely different ownership uh, and has massively ramped up the prices compared to the original contract, which just drove the client away. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And what, so you talked about being sensible, not trying to look at everything in the market. So what is, what from your experience, what's the best way to shortlist technology vendors? Um, so let's take it just for the, because I know e-commerce platform are not all equal, like some are full end-to-end -end with OMS, et cetera, but let's take the core e-commerce technology. Yeah, yeah. What is the best way to do it? What works for you and what, what have you found helps clients to, to focus? I, I, I mean, as a consultant advising a client, I would want to try and understand the nature of the client, you know, i.e. do they have multiple brands, multiple catalogs, 
um, and therefore that side of things is going to be really important to them. Do they have a preference for a big name or are they not bothered? You know, there, there are lots of sort of unwritten parameters that the clients really have that they don't tell people. Um, so we try and elicit those out from the clients that we work with um, because that helps you narrow down the list and to some extent the client is always going to rely on consultants that it brings in to have a wider view of what's going on because if you've just worked with one platform for five six seven eight you know plus years then you're not necessarily going to know whether or not that platform um can do all the things that all of the other platforms can do so you don't necessarily know what you're missing i guess is what i'm trying to say Makes sense. Um, so I have a question. Um, so when, so you said earlier about, you know, there's a lot of instances where um, people are looking at running an RFP and then actually there's not a need to do an RFP or potentially even kind of uh, buy a new technology. Um, when yes. do you need to do an RFI or an RFP? Um, yeah, when do you think it's like definitely needed? I think it's definitely needed when um, there's going to be a certain cost parameter to it because although James mentioned the econ platforms in the last question, I think there are occasions where you don't need an RFP simply because the cost of the technology is so cheap, you just need to go and buy it and try it. So that might be true for, I don't know, um, last year it was, it was true for a PIM platform. You know, it was going to cost £40,000 for the business. Um, and yet, if you'd gone through a full RFP process, that would have cost them more than that anyway. Yeah. Um, so it was just a question of getting on and doing it in that particular instance. But so there's a, I guess there's a, there's a financial threshold that you need to cross, and that will differ by client. Um, but say you're spending somewhere between 250 and 5 million on a platform, and it's probably that bigger spread, then you're going to need an RFP. Um, and also, if you have multiple stakeholders within the business um, and you're trying to create an objective view across those stakeholders, so you might have a CTO, a CMO and a COO, all of whom have an interest in how e-commerce is going to work in the future, um, often the best way to do that is to run a completely objective RFP process um, because that will remove, hopefully remove the arguments. That makes sense. Um, and I have a bit of a sub question just because we've been talking about um, platforms. Um, mm -hmm. And nowadays, obviously, like historically, you would be comparing kind of apples of apples with platforms and you would just, you would generally kind of buy into a platform and then a few supporting technologies. Whereas nowadays um, you have platforms like Commerce Tools or Elastic Path. Um, and then you still have platforms like a Magento or Shopify or big commerce or whatever else. Mm -hmm. um, how do you get a client or how do you, do you think it's important that you get to a point of kind of parity across different solutions and how would you generally kind of approach that? Um, if you're kind of comparing one technology to essentially what could be um, a bit of an open brief or it could end up with kind of five, six, seven different technologies. Yeah, I think, I mean, as a consultant, I will try and, characterize the different sorts of systems so whether they're ones that offer headless and the, again the client may or may not be comfortable with headless um, whether they're fully SaaS or does their client actually want on-premise but you know um, some still do apparently um, you know so so there are certain characteristics um, you know if if the client has lots of shops physical shops retail outlets then some solutions will be uh, written out of the possible RFP um, because Shopify cannot support multiple multiple retail outlets currently, um, although it's moving very quickly. Um, I, but I think it's a really interesting question because you know being able to compare um, you know even IBM and Oracle Commerce Cloud um, and Salesforce Commerce Cloud and Big Commerce across you know across different parameters is is exceptionally hard because. The technology is a really interesting time because the technology is moving really quickly at the moment. Um, and to some extent, it's, it's the sort of um, understanding how frequently is the platform being updated? Is it still being loved by people? You know, the, the number of uh, updates that Hybris SAP Commerce Cloud has now compared to when Hybris was 
kind of at its peak in the UK four or five years ago, um, you know, they're just not updating the platform as frequently as they used to. Um, so it's, it's, it's really hard to isolate one set of factors that determines who should be on that list, because otherwise I would just have a list of 10 people and they would all get every RFP. Yeah, it makes sense. So you don't. think it's <laughs> yeah. Um, so you think it's more of a case of kind of uh, qualifying options a bit more and kind of um, breaking it down and then um, kind of yeah building out the solutions from there rather than comparing. Yes, and the, but this is still at a quite holistic strategic level. There are yeah. some uh, approaches that some of the platforms have that will uh, cut them out of certain CTOs thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they just aren't ready for agile working yet, or um, they're they're just not comfortable with the way some things are some things work together, or they're completely a Microsoft house still, um, and therefore you know some platforms will work better than than others. Um, and and it's my job as a consultant to try and elicit those things out of the client and get them to match at a sort of high level across some of those those platforms. Um, I think the, the RFP I was talking to earlier, referring to earlier when there were 23 different vendors, they, they went onto the long list was because they didn't really have a clear idea. So it was yeah. a bit of a fishing exhibition expedition um, when, when they were doing that exercise at a long list level. Um, but I, you know, you can see that there are some platforms that are definitely on the ascendancy right now for various different reasons. And if you're trying to merge CMS functionality, you know, content driven e-commerce, which is where a lot of people are trying to go to, then that's going to lend you to some platforms better than others. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes, um, makes perfect sense. Um, the next question, so kind of slightly different, but I guess going back to kind of a higher level around the value of RFPs, Mm -hmm. Do the businesses you work with tend to kind of understand what a good RFP process looks like? Or do you find yourself kind of wasting a lot of time, particularly in larger businesses? Um, yeah. And kind of do, do you have any kind of frustrations around that? Like are there types of businesses that you find are kind of easier to work with? Um, I think larger organizations struggle because very often they've got um, infrastructures that have been around for a long time, particularly in the retail world. You know, you've got um, big retailers who are still sat on IBM um, and they're used to doing things at a certain pace. And one of the challenges I try and uh, put up to, to retailers is how do you inject pace into what you're doing overall? So there's a, there's a whole sort of thread of trying to build in lighter, more mobile friendly, more agile systems and processes um, in order to make retailers more competitive. Because at the moment, the way things are going in retail and certainly after COVID-19, they are massively struggling and trying to ensure their survival they are going to have to do things in a radically different way from the way that they did they have been so you know i'm there as an argent provocateur to get the business to change as well as to get them to do the right process from from an rfp of a sound rigorous process um so it's i guess i'm treading a tightrope to a certain extent on that side of things yeah. I, having worked with lots of different uh, businesses you'll have learned a lot about what works, what doesn't work. What do you, what do you think businesses need to do to prepare? Cause you can't just be left down to an external consultant. Businesses need to take oh, God, no. well to make it successful and also to let you do your job as a consultant. So what is your advice? Somebody yeah, I, 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 I let you, I would be deeply uncomfortable if it was left to me. Um, and it has been multiple times. Um, I will still do the best job because, you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty good at putting myself in the client's shoes, providing I've spent enough time with the client. Um, I'm pretty good at, you know, being dropped in to the client and, and taking their view. Um, 
but you know they they a good process is going to it's going to work if you involve the right people internally they have the remit that they have enough time to work on it um the consultants should be there to cross the t's and dot the i's and to make sure that the flow of the whole thing works so you know yes i'll create the spreadsheets or use the right our um, requirements tools i will be there to challenge people to say you know if we're going to use the moscow rating you know, must have could um should have could have won't have um in terms of functionality um and to help structure what goes into um you know phase one um but in terms of what the business needs they understand that far 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 better than i will ever do unless i can work for them for 10 years or something um so it's it's mixing the challenge that i bring to their knowledge of what works within the organization i have to force the the client to be as objective as possible and not just take what they do now and move it onto a new platform because that's a complete waste of everybody's time and i've seen that lots of times i think that's one of the most important points actually uh is that is that i guess that's the role of somebody's outside the business is not just accept this is the way we do it when that might not be efficient or it might not align with best practice anymore or it might not fit with how platforms work and can do things efficiently to yes. productively challenge it so they yeah cause you're right carrying over crap processes into a new system is a complete waste of time yeah and uh, yeah i've you know I've, I've worked in the past with lots of clients who were on um vendor that uh, wonderfully not very much loved econ platform of old uh many of whom went on to hybris and i've been back to business recently which is on hybris and is still on a nine ten year old version of hybris and the process that they have in the business were identical to the processes that they will have had on vendor um it was really quite shocking um, in terms of the way that they were doing things um yeah so it, it's it's really hard not to just say we like doing things this way. Um, you've got uh, the way you do e-commerce campaigns and they're reflected on the websites, how you build landing pages, how you um, even how you do your technical SEO stuff, um, all of which may well be a horrible, horrible compromise at the moment because of the technology and where and its history of where it's come from. Um, and you know oh we always used to do that in in spreadsheets you know client last year they had 14 spreadsheets different spreadsheets with different macros in that anybody could alter between the erp system and their econ platform um so the likelihood of them actually having good data in the first place is minimal so you know in that case even though they need they wanted and needed a new econ platform they had to put a pim in first um in order to get the data right it is amazing actually how sometimes like people from the outside look into a big successful business that's turned over hundreds of millions online and think wow how do we get there and then internally when you pick apart the systems it's like held together with sticking plaster oh yeah um, and, and just because the effort to unpick it is a lot therefore the technical debt builds up and then the effort to unpick it gets bigger and bigger year on year and you wonder how a business is surviving based on on like macros in Excel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say half the high street is still on that. Um, I guess the difficulty in trying, and particularly the current times where people are being laid off and retailers are shrinking their head of head office functions. How are you going to get the bandwidth of the internal teams who actually know how all this stuff works to a certain extent? Um, and if you want to change it as you switch platforms or, or um, add a new tool into the, into the tool set, then who's going to make the change of, okay, we're going to move that, you know, doing all of the, the pricing in the econ platform to actually doing the pricing further up the, the workflow. Um, so it's effectively coming out of your ERP or the system immediately after the ERP, depending on what you've got. Um, you know, trying to get the bandwidth of the people to actually have those discussions, A, is critically important, and B, is really hard, um, because most retailers, you know, 
only have one or two people who would get it from a, from a, an operational point of view and a technology point of view. Makes sense. Um, yeah, I think you touched on it a few minutes ago, but I think, um, I guess a lot of that or a big part of that for some of the businesses that are trying to change is that CTO role um, and kind of trying to bring technology more into like a leadership team. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree that it's a CTO role because um, in many retailers, the CTO has come up through running store-based systems yeah. and actually does not have what I would call a digital system view on the world. Um, and they may be really good at running an efficient system that holds up across the shops, but actually in terms of running agile processes, making sure uh, and, and getting a, an e-com platform or its associated systems up and running, um, might not actually have the right skill set to be able to do that. And in fact, may not even have the, be the decision maker. It could be your chief digital officer if you have one. Um, yeah, it, it depends on the organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so next question. Uh, in your experience, what are some of the biggest mistakes and most common mistakes people make when planning an RFP? Um, yeah, well, the first one of those is actually one we've already touched on is when the consultants are left to make all the decisions. Um, even though I actually enjoyed the challenge of that, um, it's not the role that the consultant should have. You know, I'm not necessarily a specialist in all of the jobs needed to make the system perform. I can do most of them to a reasonably good level, but I'm not a technical architect. Um, and I am not somebody who will necessarily understand the client system setup, um, nor should I be. Um, so that's, that's the first mistake. The other big mistake is the classic one where the clients don't pay enough attention early enough in the process and then move the goalposts once the program is underway. So particularly if the, if the long list has been uh, what I called earlier a fishing expedition, um, you know, because they don't understand what is available out there, they want to see some nice shiny uh, new bits of kit to understand what they could do, and then they change their decisions as they go through. Whilst that is a mistake, it's almost inevitably going to happen. Um, so it's one that as a consultant, I have to manage through that process and try and make the clients as aware as possible of the options and what what is available to them as early as possible in the RFP process. So, you know, that means I need to have as broad a knowledge of as many different systems as I possibly can, uh, which hurts your head sometimes. Um, you know, and, and it's not at the detailed level necessarily of you know, if you're, if you're putting in a search and merch tool of knowing how the algorithms work on all their different AI options, but it's knowing is AI available on that particular tool set, for example, it's that, it's that sort of level I can go to to mitigate that problem. Um, so I, I'm a big believer in making sure a team who will run and operate the system need to understand how they will carry out the work. Um, in order to try and remove as many unintended consequences of the program as possible. So you frequently see things of, uh, you make a decision on a system. Um, for example, um, we're gonna put in a new ERP system and we're gonna move all of the product master data into the ERP. Sounds a very sensible approach, except for the fact that in that case, uh, it was a variant of Microsoft Dynamics that did not allow you to edit more than one product at a time. So if you've got 30,000 SKUs that you need to go in and add an extra field to, it's going to be a lot of work. Whereas you can do it in many econ platforms uh, with a lot less effort. Um, and then the sort of last thing for me, and I've seen it multiple, multiple times, is that when you're buying particularly something like an econ platform, um, you're actually, not buying a platform at all. You're buying um, the ability to provide e-commerce for three to five years to you. You're actually entering a partnership with the vendor over the next three to five years. And you want them to be responsible for not just the implementation, but the implementation and maintenance and updating of the program 
of the platform for that time period. And that's really important, A, because if the vendor is only thinking of, oh, I'm just selling this implementation, that's one mindset. If I'm selling the implementation and I'll have to fix all the bugs for free if I in, put them into the process, uh, that creates a different mindset from the vent at the vendor. Makes sense. Um, and another slightly different question, I guess, but you've, you've talked about this um, a bit, a little bit earlier. Um, who should be involved in an RFP and why, and what role should they play? And also like just drawing on some of your experiences, how have you kind of got different people um, kind of bought in? Um, yeah, I'm trying to be succinct on this one because that could go really wide. Um, <laughs> My personal view is that you do actually need to involve as wide a group as possible early on, um, simply because there may be some alignment you need to do amongst different teams. Um, so, you know, if, if you don't involve the CRM team or the mar e, um, email marketing team within the e-com process, then you're going to miss a gap. Um, oh, sorry, not miss a gap, but you will uh, miss an opportunity to have something that works seamlessly better. Um, so that wide group needs to understand how the new platform should work and then can assess whether or not that is workable for the team. Um, but in terms of day-to-day -day process and project management, I would want that to be a really small team. And ideally, I would like a point person from the client to work alongside um, so that that process then, then flows quite well. There are some people you need to have in lots of different aspects of the meeting. You know, if the client has a technical architect, uh, or it may be the CTO, um, and it has to involve somebody who has a wide enough view of the econ processes um, to to represent the views of everybody. Uh, I will work with them to try and get them not just to represent their own views and prejudices, which we all have, but actually to try and represent, you know, their stakeholder set effectively. Um, and then the other, the other aspect um, that comes in is when you need to do demos, um, which I think we'll talk about later. Um, so, in terms of decision-making, the roles there are clearly going to be driven by financial responsibility. So you will end up with your CFO, probably possibly your CEO or owner of a retailer, and your CTO will be the main decision-makers. And actually the program manager or the project manager who's been involved in going through a lot of the RFP process may actually not be a decision-maker in the same way that I as a consultant will make possibly make a recommendation, but I won't necessarily make a recommendation. Um, you know, unless it's really obvious that they shouldn't choose one particular system or they should choose one particular system. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it, it's different. And I think at the end of the RFP process where you, where you get to that point of financial decision-making, you're going to get uh, a completely different skill set from the, from the client team needed. And you may need to have some, uh, a member of the finance team actually working up all of the whole of cost life, if that's how you want to compare them, um, and making sure that the basis of all the calculations is true and fair and representative of the way that the business likes to work. Uh, you know, it may be they treat CapEx in one particular way, uh, and because that does vary by business. Yeah, I think that point about having, uh, having a central con uh, contact or central person who coordinates internally for the client is essential. It doesn't matter what size of business, but there's nothing worse than when there's three or four people and nobody knows who's making the decision and what the decision-making path, what the escalation path is yeah. and the governance around it. And what somebody says on, uh, in one meeting contradicts what another person said the previous day and how you align that. So yeah, that, I think that's essential. And you talked about the demo. So that kind of, that's a nice segue into the next set of questions you've got. So we were talking about this before last time we chatted about, RFPs where you've got like 400, 500 point checklist, tick box exercises and, and not enough time spent in the product. So yeah. from your, from your um, uh, viewpoint and experience of delivering this across multiple clients, how much time in this process should be allocated to product demos versus responding to documents? 
Um, I would like as much time as possible on product demos. Um, so from an in-house point of view, you need to give them as much time because very often people are not uh, system literate or IT literate because you know, the way that IT guys speak is different from the way that marketing guys speak, which is slightly different from the way that econ people speak, which is completely different from the way that finance people speak. Um, so it's, it's really important for them to see it, uh, to get some enthusiasm for it. Um, I can brief the vendors that that will happen and therefore the vendors will have more patience because very often they think you should only have one demo. Um, but if, even if you have different audiences, you have senior stakeholders, the demo is going to be different from, um, you know, an e-com executive who's going to be doing this stuff day to day um, because they're looking at things from different points of view. And very often it's good not to mix those. Um, you almost always have to rerun demos multiple times anyway, simply because key people don't turn up because uh, you know, some trading crisis happens or there's a warehouse issue and they have to go and sort those out rather than going to a demo. It always happens. It's, I've never been to a business that it doesn't happen. Um, I think as long as the vendors are told that early enough, then, then it's a workable process. It also means, again, that you don't want to go through that process with 23 different vendors. Um, so the answer is as much possible and as much as possible to product demo. And uh, given, given now that we're in a uh, remote working world predominantly and yeah. will be for the foreseeable near term future, how feasible do you think it is and how open would client teams be that the demos are recorded? Like we're doing a zoom recording today, doing a, a, a video recording via a tool like zoom and the people who can't make it get a video playback session. I live. think, yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good way of, um, of updating the people. Uh, who don't go to the demos? I think it's, people will be massively more comfortable with that with that than they were six months ago. Um, I think, I mean, obviously that doesn't allow them to ask questions, but that could be fed into the process, uh, certainly you know by the project manager or by the consultant. Um, the yeah, sorry, I think that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, I know it's not perfect, but I was just thinking that. I don't see enough of it actually people recording and sharing. You see a lot of no. I mean, people share documents afterwards, like 50 page word documents or PDFs, but there's nothing more. We've seen it in e-commerce, right? You put a video to explain a complex product and the impact of conversion tends to be much higher than a deluge of copy on a page. And I, I, I kind of feel in the RFP process that, that, that even myself as well is not thinking about that part enough about how that could have an impact. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in practice, the RFP documents that are fed back by the vendors to the client are probably only going to be read by two or three people, fully read by two or three people. Yeah. I would be one of them. The project manager would be the other. And there'll be one, probably one other really interested person in the business who will do it. And that's just because they're interested. Um, pretty much no one else reads the documents fully, um, <laughs> which is why having... 500 bullet points, you know, the questions is, is really not very worthwhile. Um, because the clients cannot, you know, or humans generally just cannot hold that much information in their brains to allow the comparison across 500 different points. Um, unless you're completely prescriptive around the answers you get, many answers are not going to provide a simpler comparison as you want anyway. Yeah, and I think I, I typically only use those things where a procurement uh, uh, department has said we have to have a checklist proving yeah. that we, we've said yes or no. And it's like, okay, fine, we'll get them to complete the checklist because otherwise we don't pass the internal procurement, which is only for certain type of business. Most businesses don't have that sort of process. But yeah, yeah. and I, I think you know the the other issue is that all vendors are going to respond and be perfectly good at delivering ninety five to ninety eight percent of the things on the list anyway. Um, so I, as a consultant, will try and focus on the things that I know will make a difference. Um, I probably won't know all of them. Um, the yeah. client might know a couple more. Um, so, but even then, even if you've got a list and a checklist of does the system do X, Y, or Z, how do you get the understanding of 
how well does it do X, Y, or Z? Uh, and how easy is it to use? Because the checklists completely ignore the usability of the platform, 100%. in my experience. I think and, that's the most salient point is the how bit. Because it does, you're right, the checklist become a, can it do it? Yes. And it's like, but it does it really poorly and you're going to have a massive manual process and your web ops team are going to hate you forever. Um, so yeah, it, it, and that brings me back to another question I had in the demo, which is coming back to that point, like the how bit, you can't demo on, on how every single last functional element of the platform. So how do you help e-commerce teams or a wider business stakeholders decide what to focus demos on? Um, if I've worked with the client for a reasonable period of time, I think I can help to steer the vendor onto the aspects that I've been getting feedback from the client on. So the things that they're worried about or the things that they don't really understand. Um, and particularly if you have multiple demos, that's, that's great because you can use them to uh, offset the gaps in people's knowledge. Um, and, uh, and generally that's the, most efficient from the client point of view way to do it. Um, so another question on demos. Um, how do you think demos should be structured in terms of getting the most out of the session? Like who should be involved? Um, how do you think the vendors should approach them? What, what's your kind of like, I guess, given your experience, like what, how have you seen demos um, be most useful and valuable? So, I mean, if, if you're having a very first demo, which would almost certainly be to a very limited audience, um, it's, it's a question of that, you know, I would say the very first demo is probably a 10 or 15 minute overview of the system done by the sales guy. It's not really the proper demo. The proper demo is once you're in the RF, properly in the RFP process. Though I, I I will help the vendor to focus on the things that the client has told me are important, that they are worried about, or that I have seen are problems, which is why it helps if I've worked with the vendor, you know, the, the client for a while, because I'll understand what those pressures and, and um, issues that they have are. Um, and then I will make sure that the vendor finds a way to address those. Um, the worst sort of demos are just scripted ones from the vendor uh, where they're just literally just going through a, a, a show and tell and they're not actively listening to what the customer is saying. Um, so yeah, I guess it's an, it's an iterative process as well. So trying to work out what the demos focus on is really important. I think it's part of my job as a consultant and there are risks associated for vendors if they don't cover certain things in the in a demo um so they would be on a list that i give to the vendor beforehand um so it may be a particular question from a cto or somebody that says i you know i understand this platform does x y and z i want to know this this is really critical to me um, so that has to go into the demo. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, interestingly for me, when I, when I write briefs now on clients' behalves, um, the, the RF, the traditional RFP bit is shorter than the demo brief. Yeah. Um, because for that exact reason, I want the scenarios mapped out. I want questions, so specific questions that they have to address for the how, but not just can you like, can you do abandoned baskets? Yes. Great. But how? How do you set it up? How do you control it? All those things would be very, very specific and, and then give them free reign outside of that to say, you can then showcase additional capability on yep. top of that, provided you answer those questions. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. And I, I, that's happening more and more and certainly how I've been doing things for a while. Um, you know, I think the, the other aspect that you're trying to get out of a demo is I referred to earlier in terms of having a system architecture on a page is you're trying to map the vendor's view of the world into your future systems architecture. So it's not just a, you know, it's like, it's like a slightly flexible jigsaw puzzle that you're, you're trying to fit, fit a new piece into. So, you know, last year working on, on, on a PIM implementation, um, 
when we went through the demos, it highlighted capability that actually the client could use to fix lots of other gaps in its systems throughout the process. Um, so, you know, it could be a, um, it could have been used almost as a master data management uh, piece at product origination stage before it even went into the ERP. It's not what it's designed to do, but it seemed to have all the capabilities to be able to do that for that particular client who was running everything on a spreadsheet. Um, you know, so, so there are instances like that where extra value of the vendor can be highlighted. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I think accepting that that demos aren't perfect as well is a, is an important thing. Um, and I guess it comes back to your early points about getting the right structure up front and getting clients to think about what's important, so that they don't they have to take some ownership, right? Because yeah. they just say, "You tell me, Mark. What 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 should I do?" And then afterwards, they say, "Ah, oh, it's not what I wanted." But that's the most frustrating thing is somebody trying to help the client. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, particularly particularly if you're dealing with with pure salespeople. Um, and if they don't listen to what's being said, you know, it's, it's like uh, we don't have the capability to code APIs in-house and we have a very old system um, and they just go blah, 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 blah. Oh, we just take an API feed. You know, that's just one particular silly instance that I've, I've seen happen. Um, and particularly because they think sales guys are completely interchangeable one from another. Um, and they don't intern the vendor will struggle to internally brief one sales guy from another sales guy. Yeah. And I've, uh, I, I got stung a few times running projects where it was salespeople and it's like, um, I came, I was sitting there an hour in thinking, this is awful. This is a car crash. And I'm totally insistent now that if depending on the audience mix, like if there's technical people in the room and you know, yeah. complex stuff around like order management, that they have to have a, a pre-sales solution um, specialist in there. Yeah, I, I, I would probably call them an implementation person. Yes. Um, rather than pre-sales, because I just think pre-sales may or may not actually know how to implement the product. Oh, well, I think that, yeah, I think that's probably just poor use of words. Yeah, that, that I guess pre-sales suggests more about um, selling rather than implementation. Yeah, you're right. In, people with implementation practical skills. Um, cool. Interesting. So, that's got through all of the, I mean, that's been really useful, interesting, uh, and also good for me because I've learned more stuff. <laughs> um, my final question for you uh, is Cracker. If you had to give your younger self advice on running an RFP for a client, what would it be and why? What would be the couple of key things that, that you would want people to take away? And also, oh. would you have listened, like 10, 10, 15 years ago, would you have listened to this advice? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's the opposite of the magic wand question that I always ask people in terms of if you have a magic wand, what, what would you do differently? Um, so if I was to give my younger self advice on running an RFP, I would say um, have patience because it takes time to run through the process. You cannot shortcut it. Um, I'm sure you've come across clients who said we've got to go through this in two weeks or, or whatever. You can't do it that quickly. Um, and the other one would be to make sure that you're as empathetic to the clients as possible. I think originally I probably was more along the lines of here's the list of functionality. These we've got, to, these we must have, these we should have, blah, blah, blah. And actually it's, it's a more, uh, finessed, empathetic view I would suggest my younger self should take um, because it is, can be very much about the people who are at the client who have to operate it, their level of knowledge and their understanding. And you have to make sure that you take them on the journey. Um, I'm not sure I would have listened to the patience thing because I've always been relatively impatient. Um, and I hope that I would have the, the, EQ to be able to support the clients through that, through the process and be more empathetic. But I think I've got more empathetic as I've got older. I think that's a really nice point. I really do. It is you can't, I, I, that resonates with me as a younger me is, and also the empathy with the client and, and understanding where they're coming from and 
you know, even to the point of if somebody's back might be put out by having to do this process. Yeah. And I've seen that before an internal technology person, you know, thought that they might have an external technology partner coming in. It can, it can be disruptive and having to understand those nuances is so important to get people on site because if you don't get them on site from the start, it's an absolute cluster later on. Yes. Yes. And I think the other, the other thing I would probably tell my younger self is that you can't know everything. You know, one of the things I used to want to try and do is to understand everything in as much detail as I possibly could. Um, and, well, certainly my brain now at my age can't hold it all in. Um, I'm not sure it could have done 20 years ago either. Um, but you can't know everything about everything. Yeah. So um, that is, of course, part of the process of the RFP process is to make sure that you do have these checklists and, and you do it. But it's but also knowing how you use things is and how easy it is to use is my view now much more important than my view 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I think it's a real eye opener when you you stop obsessing over having to know everything and realize that one of the most beautiful things is making the client teams feel that they are contributing and know stuff that you don't. Because yeah. there's nothing worse than having an external consultant who's trying to tell you your job. Yeah so patronizing and uh, and uh, yeah she kicked my oh god was i a patronizing consultant oh god <laughs> <laughs> i i'm sure i wasn't Possibly. patronizing intentionally but i'm sure i probably didn't listen to people enough when i was younger and that was probably a a trying to do too much and i think your point resonates with me a lot about the is that don't don't try and know everything focus on what your role in that process is yeah. to get through the process basically Um, cool. That's been that's been really interesting. I've, um, I've learned a lot, which is I always do when I chat with you, Mark. Um, Paul, did you have any other parting questions for Mark? I don't think so. Um, yeah, I agree. I think really interesting. Uh, very different. I think your experience is uh, is mostly a very different end to end of the market to mine. Um, so yeah, some really insightful stuff. Um, yeah, re really interesting episode. Yeah, I don't think I have any other questions. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Cool. So, Mark, I guess the, the parting thing from us, apart from saying thanks ever so much for coming on and thanks everyone for listening, is if people want to find out more about what you, uh, you uh, and your partner do at Prospero, how do they get in touch? What's the right way to, to reach out to you? Uh, either via email on mark at prosperocommerce.com or go and have a look at our website, which is www.prosperocommerce.com, uh, where hopefully we explain what we do succinctly and clearly. Wonderful. Uh, thanks again for coming on. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon, sir. Thank you. No, that's been good. Well done.